0: The currents actually pushed the ship itself onto one of the outlying reefs, and so even though he was there to assist, potentially assist others, the Saginaw was grounded, and then they needed some assistance. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis.
1: Welcome back to another episode. Our guest today is Jeff Bowden, who is the head of the Curator Branch for Naval History and Heritage Command. Jeff, welcome to Annapolis, to the Academy, and to Preble Hall. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you become the
0: head of the Curator Branch at NHHC, and what do you do? So I started in this career about 15 years ago. I did my graduate degree at East Carolina University in maritime studies and got a job with the Coast Guard Historian's Office. The first few years, I was a sort of a general historian uh, working in the archives and answering informational requests. The second year I was there, I was actually tasked with leading the Coast Guard's response, excuse me, uh, leading the, the Coast Guard historian's response to document Hurricane Katrina. And so I spent a year doing that, which was, which Were was pretty Were you down exciting. there, or did you do it at headquarters? It was all through headquarters. I was able to get down to Air Station Clearwater to conduct some more histories with a colleague. But other than that, it was all done remotely. Was anybody also
1: recording the the activities of the United States Navy? I know we had some helicopters over there. We had some other supporting elements. Or were you so, solely focused on Coast Guard?
0: I was solely focused on Coast Guard. I mean, There was a little bit of crossover. You, you can't help but know that there's other DOD assets in the area, but it was specifically for the Coast Guard. Can you give us a sense of how much
1: Activity was there for the Coast Guard in support of Katrina. That was 2000, uh, November
0: 2005 or October 2005. It was, it was immense. Uh, I was told that a full one-third, or one-third of the entire uh, rescue swimmer force was there at one point in time. Uh, people said it was like homecoming for them. They got to see old friends and sailors they hadn't seen in years. Simply the sheer numbers of, of rescue swimmers that were on station being rotated through. They brought in uh, rescue swimmers, I think, from just about every air station that the Coast Guard operates. It was impressive.
1: Is there an estimate of how many people the Coast Guard rescued? It's over twenty-two or
0: 26,000.
1: You're here today to talk about the USS Saginaw. But before that, I want to ask you about how NHHC manages official commemorative efforts, and specifically the one you're working on right now.
0: So every year, NHHC is, is tasked with managing the Navy's official commemorative dates. And there's some that we, that we manage every year uh, we commemorate. The Navy's birthday, for one. We will always commemorate the Navy's birthday. The Battle of Midway is also a huge point in the Navy's history. It'll always be commemorated. But about a year or two ago, the command got together with some of its subject matter experts and asked us what we thought the command and the Navy should commemorate. And those are generally based off of certain um, certain purity of dates, 50th anniversary, 75th anniversary, 100, etc. And so this year, you know, we had some pretty big ones. Um, 75th anniversary of the Battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, the 70th anniversary of the amphibious landings at Incheon, and of course, the U.S. Naval Academy's 175th. Uh, and so one of the ones that I... Proposed was to commemorate the history of the USS Saginaw, and that came about because I managed the Navy's Central Artifact Collection, and the the captain's gig, the boat that was used to help rescue those individuals, is in our collection, and so it had, it had relatively recently come back to us. It was on loan for wasn't for, that in, it wasn't that the Historical Societies in Michigan? Correct. Yeah, Saginaw Historical Society for several, many decades actually. And then why were they?
1: Why did you retrieve it, or
0: why were you able to retrieve it? They were ready to return it. Uh, some loans last uh, three years, ten years. Oh, 20 so that years? was that was a loan. That, that was, was a not, loan, correct? That it, the
1: boat didn't. The gig did not go to Saginaw, Michigan.
0: It was never transferred. No, it was it was okay. loaned to them. Yes, and so they contacted us uh, several years prior to when the the boat actually came back in 2015, saying that we're, they were ready to return it. Let's get back to the, that
1: yeah. boat later on. Of course. Um, and back to the commemorative. What constitutes a, the level of activity needed for a commemorative event? What are the What are the criteria?
0: Sort of the general criteria would simply be, you know, important dates in Navy history, you know, fr- from its most basic concept. Uh, there's no... There's no specific level. It's really somewhat subjective based on the, the historians and then ultimately the director's uh, opinion of, of those dates that we should commemorate and those dates that the CNO ultimately signs off on that, that we do that.
1: What are you doing for the Saginaw specifically? How are you organizing this and who's involved?
0: So it's, it's a cross-divisional uh, membership from individuals from our communication outreach division, our histories and archives division collection management division of which I'm a part of we all get involved and as well as excuse me our museum division of course Uh, we all get involved in our own areas of expertise or our own holdings and see how we can contribute so for example our communication outreach staff they're organizing a a wreath or a lay lay laying Mm -hmm. at the site in Kauai where the boat crew landed our Colleagues in the museums are checking their collections to see what objects they have, and we'll be developing and posting artifact website spotlights for those. Uh, In my division, it's pretty much focused on the curator branch because, again, we have the gig. And so I'll be drafting and writing up a blog post on the history, a lot of what we're talking about here, uh, the history of the boat and, and the crew and then the voyage and then, of course, our, our histories and archives, uh, they've updated the, the Dictionary of American Naval Fighting Vessels entry, as well as searching through the NAVY uh, NHHC's archives to determine what material we have that's available for use.
1: That's a great source, uh, Dan. And it's available online. So anybody can go to history, history.navy.mil and find DANFS on practically, I think, every ship in the Navy.
0: Just about yeah, and they're they're constantly updating it with, with new information, recently discovered information. Uh, and because there's just so many ships out there and only so many historians, <laughs> there's a little bit of a backlog, but they're certainly working uh, toward that. So tell us what the USS Saginaw was. What kind of ship was it? When did it operate? So the Saginaw was commissioned in January of 1860 at the Mare Island Naval Shipyard. And she was actually the first ship that the Maryland Shipyard constructed. She was a sidewheel steamer and her career was pretty much exclusively serving in the Pacific. Right after her commissioning, she served in the East Indian Squadron, protecting American citizens and conducting anti-piracy patrols. During the American Civil War, she was attached to the Pacific Squadron, operating on the West Coast to prevent any kind of Confederate activity. And then later, she sailed down to Mexico and Central America, also to protect Union interests. After the American Civil War concluded, the Saginaw spent more time, again, on the West Coast, supporting settlers and assisting Western Union in laying cable, which actually was the first telegraphic service to the region. She assisted with that. And then in uh, 1869, she spent about 12 months exploring and charting the coast of Alaska. So in 1870, the Saginaw traveled to Midway Island. She was supporting dredging operations. They were dredging to the entrance of the harbor. And she arrived in late March and departed on 21 October. Her captain, Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Sickard, on their way back, decided that he was going to swing by, as it were, Ocean Island, which we now refer to as Curie Atoll. How he, far is that from Midway? It's really not that far. I think it's a, it's a day or two uh, travel. It, it's not, geographically, it's, it's very close. But he wanted, to, he wanted to go by the island, or the Atoll, excuse me, because it was a very well-known spot for individuals to be shipwrecked and stranded. And so on 29 October, they arrived. Unfortunately because of the currents, the currents actually pushed the ship itself onto one of the outlying reefs. And so, even though he was there to assist, potentially assist others, the Saginaw was grounded, and then they needed some assistance. What was
1: Sickard's background?
0: Uh, I do know that Sickard was a Naval Academy grad. Uh, He eventually retired, and unfortunately subsequently died relatively shortly after 1900, and he did rise up to the rank of rear admiral.
1: Talk about the efforts of the crew to save themselves, and what they did to really get rescued themselves.
0: Sure. So the, the grounding, while obviously you know destructive to the vessel, it, it didn't completely destroy the ship instantly. Uh, they were able to get a great deal of the provisions and equipment off, and none of the men were killed during their actual grounding incident. Uh, and so after they had sort of set up camp on the Atoll, it was only after a few days that Sickard realized they were going to have to do something for themselves about their own rescue. Uh, He wasn't aware of any other ships in the vicinity. And so on the 2nd of November, he announced to the crew that they were going to try to modify the captain's gig and then set sail to Hawaii for rescue.
1: How large is this gig? The gig is... I mean, you've obviously seen it. I have
0: seen it many, many times. Uh, Can you describe it for us? Sure. Uh, It's 25 feet long. It's just over six feet in the beam. Uh, And so what they did was they gathered pieces of wood and canvas from the wreck of the Saginaw that had washed up on shore. Uh, they had taken copper nails, they removed them from some of the, the deck planking, they flattened them, they sharpened them, and they reused them. So everything that they did to modify the gig had to be taken from the wreck of the Saginaw.
1: Because there's not much on Korea at all, right? It's I mean, it, this is a really desolate place.
0: I can't imagine this, is there was there even fresh water there there was they initially did not find fresh water but fortunately they were actually able to take one of their boilers and modify it but even the engineers knew they were only going to get a few months out of that Um, and so they eventually did find some slightly better fresh water but it was definitely a concern food was also of course a concern Uh, there were some some seals and some some birds on the island but after about a week or two, uh, Sickard noticed that their populations were quickly dwindling, and so he had to cut back on the, the harvesting of those local resources. And so they, they scavenged components from the wreck to modify the gig. They added about eight inches of freeboard to her, they decked her over with wooden canvas, and they stepped it for two masts, and on the the, the decking they actually have four hatch combings uh, to allow for you know placement of the crew um, and some sort of you know I won't use the word watertight because it certainly wasn't watertight um, from the descriptions but this took them several weeks uh, to modify the boat and the Saginaw's ex-Lieutenant uh, John Talbot also Naval Academy Grad Cad- 1866 I think yep, correct yeah from from Sicker's accounts uh, at first he wasn't certain that Talbot was really going to make it in the Navy and then something happened and he did a 180 and he became a model sailor. And during all of this, uh, Talbot was chosen to to lead this expedition, this journey, and he petitioned for it. As as soon as the the immediate grounding event was over, he told Sicker that if anything were to happen in terms of them trying to rescue themselves, he wanted to be in charge. So it took them uh, three or four weeks to modify the gig. And this is the only gig on the Saginaw, correct? The other boats they had were not deemed worthy for the voyage. Because this Um, is pure open ocean. Correct, yeah. Um, So they, they modified the boat and then on 18 November the gig was ready. They chose five men, some of them volunteered in part based off of skill but also a big part of Certain men that were chosen was because they were simply physically fit and healthy uh, to, to make the voyage. Uh, and so Lieutenant Talbot was uh, in charge of the voyage. Coxswain William Halford also volunteered. He was born in England in 1841. Quartermaster Peter Francis was part of the crew. He was from Manila. And then interestingly enough, the other two members of the, the five-man crew weren't originally Navy. They were actually some of the contracting crew that were doing the dredging operations in Midway. Uh, they were two hard hat divers, uh, both from Boston, and uh, their names were John Andrews and, and James Muir. And so, on 15 November, Commander Sicker uh, enlisted them in the Navy for the duration of the voyage. In the in the event, unfortunate if it would occur that if something were to happen to them, their families would have some sort of compensation uh, for that. But uh, but being hard hat divers, they were they were physically strong. They had to be to carry that kind of weight when they were diving. Uh, and so we're, they were amongst the, the more physically fit men to to do the voyage. Back in 1870,
1: can you describe what uh, equipment a hard hat diver would have had? I mean, that's that's really early on.
0: It's really hard. You're talking hundreds of pounds uh, of equipment to wear. The there were no um, scuba equipment down there. There was no self-contained underwater breathing. It was all surface supply, uh, and so the equipment to keep um, to keep to, to, to funnel the air down there to wear to, re- to remi- basically uh, retain a, a neutral buoyancy so they could actually get on the bottom and work down there. It was incredibly heavy. So back then, when you're dredging, it's, it's not the ship that's dredging itself,
1: uh, the ship that is conducting the dredging. It is, it's the people that are going down there. Probably, yeah. It's like taking a shovel and, and working <laughs> on, on the uh, Panama Canal, except you know, under so many feet of water. That's incredible. Yeah. Tell us about the journey. Do we have any records?
0: We do have a personal account of the actual journey itself. The idea was they were actually going to have to sail north uh, for quite a period before they could actually make their turn east and then south. Uh, because of the prevailing winds and the currents, they had no other option. And they're heading for Hawaii. Correct.
1: That's the closest populated area they can go to. Correct.
0: Ideally, they were, they were trying to make Honolulu.
1: Mid- Midway didn't have any population at this point? No base? Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so... Even though it was several hundred miles out of their way, they had to, you know, you don't, you don't fight the currents and the winds, You go with them. Uh, and so they set sail, and they had enough rations for 35 days for five men at half rations, enough food. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the, the various types. Uh, there actually is a very detailed list of what they took. But um, suffice to say, they, uh, a, a great deal of their food was actually spoiled or lost in the voyage. The boat was not watertight. Somebody put molasses in their their rations of beans and rice, thinking it was a good idea, before they left. Well, it fermented. They lost all that food. Uh, They did originally have a, a lamp and a small cooking apparatus, but after about five days, both were lost. And so, by all accounts, they spent the entire voyage cold, wet, hungry, exhausted. They were constantly bailing. And the only means of navigation they had was a sextant that was cobbled together from spare pieces of machinery from the boat, which is actually here on display at the Naval Academy Museum. It's phenomenal. It's one of those few artifacts we have from this trip. Uh, But it worked. It actually did work. Um, It it got them mostly where they needed to go. The journey took, after the the 29th day of the trip, um, after being exceptionally hungry most of the time, very little food, the accounts talk about most of the men having diarrhea, um, freshwater didn't seem to be a problem. The, the accounts don't talk about a lack of fresh water, lack of food. Um, at one point in time, Halford mentions how he grabbed a, a, a seagull or another type of bird and immediately tore off its feathers and cut it into pieces, and the men ate it raw. And then uh, later in the trip, toward the end, uh, some flying fish happened to fly up on deck, and they, they just grabbed them and, and began to eat them uh, because they had, they had no other food at that point in time. But after 29 days, uh, they sighted land. Unfortunately, it was not Honolulu. It was the westernmost rock, Kaula Rock, if I'm saying that right, um, which is actually southwest of even a populated Hawaiian island. Uh, so there was nothing there. They, know they, didn't, they realized then they didn't travel far enough east before they made their southerly turn. So they had to tack for several days to try to make Kauai which was the next largest populated Hawaiian island. They knew they couldn't make Honolulu. There was no way that they could try to do that. And so on the 31st day of their voyage, at around 2 or 3 a.m., the the crew tried to make land. And I say they tried because they went into the surf zone, uh, and this is on the north shore of Kauai, and the boat immediately rolled. Uh, Halford was below, and he had come up on deck Right before this occurred, Muir was still down below. Um, Francis and Andrews were, were up on deck, as was Talbot. When the boat initially rolled over, Francis and Andrews were swept away, and they were never seen again. Talbot was able to, to hold on to the boat, even though she was turned turtle uh, in the breakers. Halford tried to get to Talbot to assist him up, but another wave hit Talbot, and then he, he drowned. Um, again, the men were exhausted. They simply didn't have the strength to do this. Um, After that, Halford noticed that, or he believed that it was in part uh, Talbot's drowning was because his clothing was so waterlogged, so he immediately stripped off his clothing and and prepared for trying to make land. Uh, The boat rolled back up. Muir was able to get out from the hold, and then um, the boat actually rolled two more times before it passed through the breakers into calmer water. So Halford and Muir Swam to land. Muir was, by Halford's account, had gone insane. Um, And a few hours later, he also passed away. So the only account we have of this trip is Halford's statement. William Halford was the only man to make it alive from this trip. And after he passed out and came to, he saw Muir's body uh, a little bit down the shore. His face was black and blue. So... The assumption is that something happened to him while he was in the hold and underwater, some sort of trauma to his head uh, that eventually killed him. Halford himself was also wounded. He had a splinter in his leg from one of the masts. After he removed the splinter, he passed out, he surmised, from lack of blood. And when he came to, that's when he saw Muir, and uh, some of the locals had gathered around. They had seen the boat, You know, they had heard the commotion, and so they started to see what was going on. One of the locals... Uh, fed him, got him food and they immediately tried to get assistance uh, which meant trying to get to Oahu so eventually Halford was able to convince um, the captain of the schooner Wayola, to change his schedule he was actually slated to go to a different port and he didn't want to pay the $75 port fee for missing his time Halford convinced him the Navy would take care of that $75 for him and they sailed to Oahu. He landed uh, on Oahu on Christmas Eve and immediately went to the U.S. Consul's office. Minister Henry Pierce, after hearing the story, chartered the 85 ton fast sailing schooner, the Kona Packet, heavily laden with supplies, and immediately set sail for Ocean Island. Mr. Pierce was in the midst of chartering a second vessel because, in life saving, redundancy is a good thing. When his petition to King Kamehameha V made it to him, and the Hawaiian Minister of the Interior, Mr. F. Hutchinson, agreed to send the SS Kilauea, a 399 ton screw steamer. So the Kona Packet and the SS Kilauea both headed out to Ocean Island. Back on Ocean Island, the crew were actually in preparations for setting sail another small boat. They had gathered enough timber and wood from the Saginaw, and they were building uh, roughly a, a roughly 40 ton schooner, which they had named the Deliverance, uh, as a backup for the gig that went out. On January 3rd, the Kilauea made Ocean Island, and the crew sighted her. And the Kona Packet actually arrived shortly after.
1: Were all the crew still alive at that point? Did they lose Amazingly,
0: anyone? Amazingly, they did not lose anyone. Um, they were down to, I think, either half or quarter rations. Uh, but the men were, by all accounts, enthusiastically working on deliverance. They were, you know, obeying orders. Um, their biggest problem were the rats. Uh, they actually had to construct—their uh, stockpile of provisions had to be constructed uh, on something on stilts to keep the rats away at night, and that was some of their biggest problems.
1: Were, there, were the rats indigenous to Curia toll, or were they were
0: from the Saginaw, the ship? They were from previous—from what I understand, they were from previous uh, wrecked vessels— in the area, um, I don't remember reading anything about there being rats on the Saginaw, but it's a ship. Yeah, you know, it's a ship. <laughs> yeah. Are there any accounts from the
1: other survivors from Curritol or Ocean Island of, uh, following this, either from the captain or anybody else?
0: So the captain's letter book survived, and is here at the Nimitz Library. And yes, uh, I actually came here about a month ago to take a look at it. Uh, and he details his account of the loss of the Saginaw in there, um, and goes through uh, about mid-November or so, and then the pages are waterlogged and they were destroyed. Um, but that voyage from 1869 through that point in time, you know, prior to them grounding, is all documented in his letter book. Uh, so it's a great, it's a phenomenal resource.
1: Tell us about the gig and what happens to the gig. And it's only the gig that comes back uh, or that's available. Uh, the deliverance was never brought
0: from Curie Atoll, was it? Correct. No, they, even though it's interesting because Sickert did not want to leave any of the Navy supplies. He felt it was his duty because this was government property to account for everything. And, and in his records, there's a very, very detailed account of every piece of machinery and equipment down to the number of axes that were left behind on the Atoll he was showing his due diligence as a navy captain uh, but the the captains of the the Kilauea and the kona packet they simply didn't have room to bring any of this material back on board and so they left all of their their provisions there for the most part the the gig itself the captain's gig it's kind of an interesting story in and of itself so locals had brought the boar the boat onto shore and then shortly after It was transported to Honolulu by the Schooner Ferry Queen and put up for auction to benefit the Saginaw's crew. On 25 January, 1871, a group of locals purchased the boat and then immediately gave it back to the Navy. They simply wanted to show their support for the crew. The boat was then transported to San Francisco a few days later. The gig arrived and stayed at Mare Island until 1866 when it traveled to the East Coast on the USS Jamestown and served as a training boat for naval apprentices. In 1889, it arrived here at the US Naval Academy. Between 1889 and the mid 1930s, there's not much in the way of documentation. It was why, why did it come to the Naval Academy? So some in the Navy believe that it was an historic boat. It was a, a great piece of Navy's material culture and could be used to teach and inspire the midshipmen. And Admiral Sellers, when he was the superintendent here, held that belief as well Uh, there's a pretty detailed account here in also in the nimitz library that discusses his efforts to have a a permanent glass structure built here on the naval academy grounds to house the boat so he went about trying to make this happen Uh, he talked to captain dudley knox curator for the navy and they were corresponding back and forth captain knox's staff was doing research um, on the sail configuration Admiral Sellers had, um, had letters from the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company offering to provide the glass free of charge, assuming, of course, that there was a plate there that said this glass is provided you know, by the Pittsburgh mm-hmm. Plate Glass Company. They had a cost estimate of just over $5,000 to construct the building, and they actually mentioned that it would be cheaper if they were able to use WPA labor, only a few thousand dollars. Uh, the location that was selected was between Lutzie and McDonnell Halls near the basin just off of Santee Road so a lot a lot of effort was being put into making the structure and then Admiral Sellers retires unfortunately when he retired the effort fell apart no one else was was interested or apparently willing uh, to take that up and the the gig was then placed oddly enough in a stairwell parallel to the glass windows of the building that enclosed the swimming pool. That's McDonough. That's McDonough. Yeah. It was there until 1946 when the head of the physical training department, Mr. E.B. Taylor, asked that the gig be removed. He stated its presence darkens the stairway and crowds the upper lobby. Then he argued that as the U.S. Naval Academy had not done anything with it in the past, it couldn't have been that historically significant to the history of the Naval Academy and should be removed from his building. So by the end of (laughs) 1946, the Committee on Memorials and Exhibits voted unanimously to recommend to the superintendent that the gig be removed and offered to another activity. First to the curator of the Navy department. Superintendent agreed and the boat was then offered to the curator of the Navy department, who accepted the transfer in 1947. That's when it becomes part of the Curator Branch collection. Um, In 1947, it was taken to an outdoor storage location in Fort Washington, Maryland. It stayed there for about a decade and was loaned to the city of Saginaw, Michigan. Um, Once it got there, it was on display at several different interesting locations in Saginaw. Uh, The Saginaw County Historical Museum for about a decade, but before that, Aside from being in storage, it was on display at the Saginaw Art Museum and then at the Saginaw Water Treatment Plant. And then in probably 2014, 2015, the Saginaw County Historical Society contacted us and they said that they were ready to return the boat back to us. And then in December 2015, the boat arrived.
1: you just put it on a trailer and get it back to Washington?
0: In essence, yes. Covered, of course. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And then it's, you didn't see, you didn't think of sailing it down around the Great
1: Lakes <laughs> up at <Saint> St. Lawrence. And
0: <laughs> I, I, I would hazard a guess that is probably not seaworthy, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's now currently at our collection management facility in Richmond, Virginia.
1: Any plans to display it? And that's a, that's a, that's a loaded question. It is. Though, it's because, always a loaded question. You know, you
0: have, how many items do you have down in Richmond? Well, a million? Not a million. Uh, so the, the collection, the, the, the central collection is roughly 300,000 artifacts. So that does not include any of the collection objects in any of the official Navy museums, nor underwater archaeology branch, nor the art branch. That's just the central artifact collection. Uh, How many we specifically have down at Richmond? Over 250,000 at least. Uh, We have a fairly robust loan program uh, with over 1,500 borrowers across the planet. Uh, And so there's tens of thousands of objects on loan uh, to these historical societies, museums, other Navy military commands, et cetera. Uh, so there's, so was, there is currently no specific plan to exhibit it. That said, I am, I am hopeful that with the eventual building of a new National Navy Museum outside the fence line at the Washington Navy Yard, that there will be a home for the gig there in the permanent galleries. The, the sole survivor, William Halford, was subsequently awarded the Medal of Honor. He was made a gunner's mate and eventually retired from the Navy. Then during World War Two, excuse me, World War I, he was recalled and made an officer uh, for training purposes, and then he retired a lieutenant. It's a phenomenal story. I can't think of any of the Navy or the military's core values that this doesn't touch upon. The self-sacrifice, the the willingness to take on this this amazing voyage, this incredibly dangerous voyage for your shipmates, their heroism. But there's a great quote uh, from Sickard's report to the Secretary of the Navy on the loss of the Saginaw, and he states how he he fails to express adequately the devotion and gallantry of the men that sailed on the gig to save their shipmates. And that those words, devotion and gallantry, for the anchor date's purposes, we had to come up with a theme, and I chose that as the theme because it really does, that story inspires me. It, it, it does talk about their devotion to their crew and to the Navy um, and the heroism that they that they've shown by doing this. And then specifically on the gig itself, when we tell the story to, to visitors when they come to the collection management facility and we show them the boat, it's great to hear the story. It's, it's a phenomenal story. On the aftmost hatch combing, all five men's names are inscribed in the wood. And when we show that to people, that's, that's the point where it really gets to them. That's the point where you see an emotional response, uh, because that's what artifacts do. They, they bring out emotion in a way, no offense to my colleagues in the histories department at all, but, but the visual representation of the history of the Navy highlights aspects that the written word simply cannot, and it brings out those emotions and, and facilitates a response that's unlike any other.
1: Jeff, thanks for sharing the story of the USS Saginaw and the incredible mission and the and the gig and the rescue. And now we'll turn it over to the second part of that story. And welcome back. And this is part two of the episode on the USS Saginaw. And with us is Hans van Tilburg. Hans, uh, could you tell us where you're working and how you got?
2: Well, I work for the uh, NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. We have a Maritime Heritage Program, which handles you know the the preservation of cultural and historic resources, which includes historic ships or shipwreck sites and I was fascinated with uh, maritime history and with sailing from uh, from years ago uh, with my father on his sloop when I grew up and um, but never had realized that it was actually a profession you know the kind of maritime history and maritime archaeology I kind of into it accidentally and eventually became a maritime archaeologist and was hired by NOAA.
1: Does NOAA employ a lot of maritime, maritime archaeologists?
2: Actually, there are just a few of us, really a handful that are scattered throughout the national system for the Office of Marine Sanctuaries. You know, some in the, uh, the East Coast and Gulf of Mexico, uh, one person on the West Coast, and, uh, and you know, just, just one person out here in the Pacific Islands region. So we work closely with other biologists in kind of a multidisciplinary fashion, but we add that historical and cultural aspect of of resource preservation.
1: Now, we did speak with a maritime archaeologist several, many episodes ago now, uh, Sarah Ward, who's an Australian working in China. But I'd like to know a little bit more about the maritime archaeology role that you perform because is is this specific to Navy wrecks on behalf of the United States government because you're NOAA, or is it a broader definition of historic shipwrecks, civilian ships, uh, merchant ships,
2: et cetera? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It actually is broader. It falls under a couple main pieces of, uh, of preservation legislation. One is our own Marine Sanctuary Act, which, uh, you know, uh, promotes... You know, the, the, the conservation and preservation of certain areas of the ocean for their, their qualities, natural resource qualities and aesthetic qualities, recreational qualities. So we fall under that. But more importantly, we fall under the National Historic Preservation Act. And that is designed to recognize where there are historic properties that are significant to our, our, our national history. That there's an effort made to consider those and preserve them if we can, and that applies to you know older vessels, whether they're military or not. So it's broader than just uh, military craft. Although there is actually specific legislation protecting military craft as well, the Sunken Military Craft Act.
1: How is that enforced? Because I know we've we've read stories over the past few years, uh, particularly in Indonesia, of U.S. and other warships from world war ii which simply have disappeared so how do you regulate something like
2: this (laughs) that's a very good question uh it's difficult because the ocean is a huge huge place you know 71 percent of the planet so um we try through awareness and education to make sure that the inventory or what what we know of for historic wreck sites like this uh, are considered if there are any projects and if there are things like, you know, some um, illegal looting or something going on in certain cases, you know, there, there can be some actions taken, but you're right. There are a lot of places in the world where all kinds of wrecks, um, unfortunately suffer some of these impacts and it's, uh, it's very difficult to, you know, think that enforcement will be 100%. It never is. How did
1: you get involved with the Saginaw?
2: Well, the Saginaw is a wonderful story and we had been aware of that story and, uh, I had been the principal investigator for the the history and the archaeology in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands for a number of years. The Saginaw had never been found, of course. Um, But, you know, even from the sketches of the commander's own notebooks, he kind of sketched in a place on the map where he said the wreck was lost on the reef. It's just a matter of finally getting a magnetometer and side scan sonar up there to begin looking which is difficult when there's only, you know, maybe one or two research uh, cruises going on each year and a limited number of berths on the research vessels. But eventually we did start looking in 2002. And in 2003, through diving, we found the first traces of artifacts on the outer reef at Cure Atoll. And, um, you know, then the story can emerge with the wreck site itself. But it's just a wonderful story for... A small Civil War era vessel, a sidewheel steamer that participated in so many um, great events and occurrences in the Pacific, from uh, the Chinese Taiping Rebellion and Opium Wars to the Civil War and, and uh, France's intervention in Mexico during the Civil War years to the exploration of the newly purchased Alaskan territories from the Russians, and onward, and finally being lost at Curie Atoll. It's it's a wonderful story.
1: What was the driver for this? Was it that some divers thought they might have found something, or is that the Navy or NOAA initiates this project?
2: We work closely with the Navy, and any, we find any kind of you know remnant of military craft. We let them know and, and work with them to interpret the site. But um, you know the area up there around Curie Atoll fell within. the the Marine National Monument. And so the driver was to find a site that would clearly fall under the definition of historically significant and should be nominated to the National Register.
1: Do you remember the first day that you approached the Saginaw site?
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. We were just a a small team of, of, of three friends working off a, a, a small vessel at Curie Atoll, which had transited over from Midway. And, um, you know, I hate to say it, but it was one of those cases of last day of diving on the project, looking for the wreck site. The magnetometer hadn't turned up anything. The side scan sonar couldn't get close enough in the, the topography of the coral atoll to do any, any sensing there. So we were diving, visually looking along the reef, moving down the reef. The seas were picking up. I know it sounds a little corny. We we were running you know lower on air, so it was getting time to return to the surface and call it for that year. When uh, Kelly Gleason, who's now Kelly Keogh, found a few uh, handfuls of brass tacks in a little puka in the reef, and that might sound like debris to anyone else, but when you're 1,200 miles away from any source of brass tacks, it was significant. And we looked around in that area and discovered the broadside cannon the chain locker, two of the anchors from the forward section of the ship and realized this is a shipwreck site right where it should be. Those are cannon that look like they were the type. And, uh, you know, you could hear the shouting underwater before we had to come back up and and celebrate as best we could. It was a great day. How long were you there? Well, we were there, you know, that kind of wrapped up the diving for that project and we had to return to Midway and fly out. But uh, we were, we managed to get back up there on a research cruise quite a bit later, actually in 2005. So 2005 and 2006, we spent significant amount of time, dedicated time at Curie Atoll surveying the site. And I mean, you know, as a, in a matter of, you know, uh, five, six, seven days at a time, diving the site, discovering the rest of the main wreck site, the stern section, the boilers, the engine room. The the large pivoting guns, the parrot rifled cannon, and then the hardware from all the rigging that was blown inside the reef itself uh, in this quite dynamic environment where we literally had to hold on to portions of the, the coral reef with one hand and shoot some pictures with the other and then, you know, retreat from the building seas in the afternoons. Because you can't really
1: just arrive on the site and begin to retrieve items, you have to conduct the full survey, correct?
2: Right, this was a non-invasive survey. So we have re- retrieved you know, a few of the items uh, to share with the public, such as the ship's bell, the, the sounding leads and things like that, but most of it is still on site. And uh, you know, unless there's a real reason to bring it back, we can share that with the public through video and photos and interpretation of the story.
1: What were some of the larger items that you found? You mentioned uh, the, uh, the gun, but what else did you see that was clear?
2: Well, those, those parrot pivoting cannon are pretty distinctive. That's Civil War technology. The large paddle wheels and paddle wheel shafts, most of the wheel is gone, but the iron structure is there. They are, of course, there in another cove nearby, and, and those are, are really immense. Um, and the boiler face was really diagnostic. Um, Because we could match that to drawings from the National Archives. There was no question that this was a confirmed, you know, USS Saginaw site. So things like that as well as one of the two trunnion steam cylinders. These were cylinders that kind of rocked back and forth as they as they pushed the paddle wheel shaft around. It must have been quite a sight in the engine room to see those things rocking madly back and forth. Uh, We found that as well Uh, but the rest Is really in a high-energy environment and pounded by storms of the North Pacific and currents and surge and blasting sand and is so reduced to you know just the artifacts scattered amongst the 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 gullies of this coral and environment
1: once you have a site surveyed like the USS Saginaw do you provide that publicly or do you prevent its exact location uh, out of fear that you might have people who have gone after say parts of the Titanic.
2: Mm-hmm. Excellent question. Uh, we are a public agency. So our mission is to share what we can as much as we can with the public responsibly. But you're right. There are some sites that may have artifacts that are sensitive or where uh, in this case, you know, enforcement of something would be questionable because, you know, simply no one is up there most of the time that's, mm-hmm. Uh, we We would probably consider that site, the specific location of it to be protected information, although everything else we want to share. But when we have sites that are that are not so sensitive like that or even already in the public realm, you know we can share those positions, but sometimes we do withhold that specific location for preservation purposes
1: i'm sure that each dive presents its own unique challenges, whatever ship you're that you're trying to survey were there any challenges that you had specifically on the Saginaw project?
2: I think uh, we agreed with uh, Lieutenant Commander Seacard when he said that there are, you know, only a few days in any given year where one could work the site safely because he had his men over those two plus months salvage everything they could from the wreck site and, and drag it back to um, Ocean Island. Um it was the weather. I mean, there were some times when we arrived, you know, after, after making plans for the the expedition, and you know, supporting it logistically, and then getting on the ship and getting up there, that the seas were up, and we just could not safely approach that site at all. It's literally in the surf zone and underneath the spur and groove topography of the coral and atoll, and and so um, you know, we did everything we could to map the site. And record the artifacts, uh, but we didn't want to place ourselves at danger. And some days we just said, you know, we just can't do it. Back to the island.
1: Now, this is an uninhabited island, pretty barren.
2: It's a low atoll island, so yeah, there, there's scarcely any trees. The one or two that are there were brought in um, in historic times. But uh, you know, the island itself is the is the refuge for the state of Hawaii, and so. There are uh, two teams a year that will go there to maintain the island, and in fact, are doing good work to remove the invasive species that grow there. So they will be camped for months um, at what is the former Loran Coast Guard station, the one building there on Kure Atoll. But it's it's, it's a very flat and quiet, and it's a place for the birds and the monk seals and sea turtles. It is quite a different environment, and barren is one way to put it.
1: Well, the reason I ask is because logistically, to conduct a survey like this on the USS Saginaw, you have to operate almost exclusively from whatever ship you're on,
2: correct? That's right, that's right, and particularly if we're doing a diving operation like this that, you know, has some risks involved. It's, it's nice to have the capacity to deal with any kind of scraped knee or, or bumped elbow or or whatever else might happen, um, you know. I imagine some work could be done by by people stationed on the island, but I, I wouldn't want to be doing intensive diving like we were without the capacity of, of a ship there and medical facilities.
1: What struck you most about this particular dive?
2: I think it's the dynamics of the the reef environment itself, the coral and topography, the spur and groove formation is is kind of like a. Uh, like a comb or a series of tunnels that penetrate the coral reef, serving to channel water into and out of the lagoon. And so there are quite strong currents that move through there that have you know, weathered the channels. There were, there were places where we could see artifacts of this Saginaw wreck, you know, brass artifacts from the engine room, which had been completely grown over by the coral and reef, the coral and algae, and then scoured open again by, these, by the sediments in these currents. So it had been covered and then scraped, scraped and revealed again within the coral itself. Um, and and the, the, the incredible pristine nature of the atoll with the life and the fish there and the monk seals coming to see what we were doing. And, and the beauty, even though, you know, very flat and a barren world overhead, the beauty of the place. Um, And the beauty of the environment up there, it was was quite an experience to to work up there for two or three years at a time.
1: What did you retrieve from the Saginaw, and where where would people see these?
2: Well, there are a number of artifacts, such as the fasteners and the the sounding leads, the find on a wreck site. They were not using the sounding leads because they didn't suspect that they were that close to the reef at 3.20 a.m. They really thought, you know, they had no way of knowing. They were dead reckoning in their transit from Midway but the current had set them further west, and there's no way you can factor that in to dead wrecking navigation. Uh, but we did retrieve those, and the, the ship's bell. And um, that's quite emblematic. That's always you know, kind of symbolic to bring back. And those things are at the Discovery Center in Hilo, Hawaii, um, on display for the public here in Hawaii.
1: Who determines what can be retrieved from a site?
2: well it's it's kind of a matter of uh, of course, this being a military vessel there's you know the management from the Navy itself, Navy History and Heritage Command will you know have the approval uh, but it's kind of an archaeological decision on what can be diagnostic and it 's kind of an educational and outreach decision on what would make the most sense to share with the public in order to tell the story and so having gone through that, we then you know applied um, to the state as well, because these are state bottomlands at Curay Atoll. So receiving the permit for recovery and conservation, because it's not just a matter of bringing something back, you carry something up from a saltwater environment, whatever it is, some wood or, or, or metal or iron, or uh, it'll need to be conserved properly and carefully curated, or it will turn to a pile of, of rust and, and mush pretty quickly. So all of that planning had to be in place and uh, but we were able to do that for these artifacts so with the appropriate approvals we recovered these items
1: was there anything you learned from the wreck itself uh that was different from what you had studied in preparing for the site survey
2: yeah it it really uh we 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 gleaned a lot from Seacard's own notes because he was a pretty careful recorder of the event uh being a navy commander also with a lot of time on his hands sitting on the island there and uh, he described how the vessel broke up, but we didn't get the full picture of the, the the amount, the area that it spread itself out. And what we see from the wreck is something that we later developed a kind of uh, an understanding of how shipwrecks fall apart in atoll environments, because that we see after this wreck mimicked elsewhere as well. That a sailing vessel will lock itself into the reef, often you know bow on. And then just pound the heck out of the stern as it falls apart. The rudder becomes unshipped and then floats around the, the bow. So we'll find the hardware from the rudder up near the bow somewhere, which doesn't initially seem to make sense. Then all the lighter material from the masts and rigging and topsides falls over and is blown inside the atoll. Um, so it's a pattern that we began to see. After studying wreck sites like this, of the way they they seem to all fall apart in this similar fashion. And that's kind of unique, we think, to to maritime archaeology, to understand that's that's a pretty typical pattern. We we came to understand that much better looking at this wreck site. I think I think um, I think it's a wonderful story. It's not just the the survival of the wreck and the voyage of the of the captain's gig over about 28 days, with one survivor out of five making it to give word in the Kingdom of Hawaii, but the small vessel itself, you know, experienced so many different aspects of history that mattered in the Pacific region that I think it's just, it's one of our, our great stories that we can tell and share. And it's not just a narrative from a book because it's the wreck site and the artifacts themselves. So I think, uh, I think attention to it is well-deserved and, and I appreciate the time I get to share about it.
1: Hans van Tilburg, thank you very much for your time today. We
2: really appreciate it. Likewise. Certainly likewise, Claude. Thank you very much.
0: Treble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.